0: Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And what is this a podcast of? Well, it's a podcast of happiness and wellness and amazing stories. And let's just be honest, it's a podcast of just about being nice and helping others. And you know, with Thanksgiving and the holidays just around the corner, you know what jumps to my mind? Oh my God, tasty foods, turkeys and stuffing and desserts. But the truth is many families, many individuals out there in America are just starving. So what did I wanna talk about today is an organization called Feeding America, whose goal is to bring food to people facing hunger. So our guest today is Dr. Tom Sommerfeld. And of course I told Tom, give me your bio. I wanna talk about you. And what does he give me? Nothing because he's just the most humble person in the whole world. So it's my time to kind of brag about him. So for people who listen to the Dr. Raj podcast, you always ask me, hey, who are my role models? Who influenced me? And it's this man right here, Dr. Tom Sommerfeld. The truth is he made me love research. He made me learn how to integrate clinical medicine with epidemiology, oh, that sounds horrible, and biostatistics, but he did it, and he did it successfully and you know the first article medical article i ever published was because of him and you know i got to present in the national stage of the american college of physicians twice because of him and during my medical residency he presented me with two directors award of research back to back years and on the second year he did it during my graduation with my parents in the audience And that was just a super special moment for everyone and one last thing is so for those who watch me on the news or whatever i'm doing and every time i say a little phrase you're like whoa where did dr raj come up with those numbers and that phrase well he's the man he's the scene behind the scenes to make sure i sound nice and polished when i go on media so with that being said let me introduce dr tom sommerfeld who's a chief research officer at feeding america former faculty member of the Schools of Medicine at Vanderbilt and the University of Chicago. Dr. Sommerfeld, Tom, thank you for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure, Raj. Thanks for having me. So you know how this goes, or maybe you don't. It's always about the meet and greet so people can get the feel about you and how did you end up where you are. Let me start off with this. Tom, what did you want to be when you grow up? I mean, what was your major in college? What did you think about becoming?
2: Oh, it's great. I... We could take up the whole podcast about that journey, my friend. So, I think, you know, when I was in, in college, really before then, what I wanted my life to be was about service to others, making a difference in the world, you know? And so, what did I think I would do during college? Teach high school. That seemed like a great way to shape the minds of the youth and uh, contribute to future generations. And then I, I quickly discovered. I couldn't pay my bills, <laughs> like you know, ridiculous. Couldn't pay my bills and and fled to graduate school and and um, kind of continued along a, a journey there as well. So that's what I wanted to do when I, when I grew up was really teach high school and coach
1: sports. Oh, nice! But you know, you did kind of go down the alley of medical education. Why medical education? Did you feel like we needed it? <laughs> Yeah,
2: so that's that's really funny. There was an opportunity at uh, one point in time. So when I when I received my PhD from Vanderbilt, and I had done predoctoral fellowship work, and then I was just starting my postdoctoral fellowship work, and working with physicians, it was super clear. There's a ton to do as a doc. You know, you got patients, you got the business side of things, which is just foreign to many physicians, you've got coding and quality. And oh, uh, I'm a cardiologist, but how does my work interact with the pulmonologist or yeah. you know, uh, this kind of stuff? So there's just so much going on. And there was, I, I saw the opportunity to kind of like, hey, in the chaotic world of delivering medical services to patients, could research be part of? making sense of some of that and helping and figuring out as a hospitalist, what's the best quality that I can bring to the table to patients who are in the hospital? Um, as an internist, what, what can I do in the office for my patients? So to, to, to kind of bring that to the table and it's stuff that's beyond the curriculum of medical school. So for, exa- for example, yeah. nutrition in medical school, Raj, yeah. think back. It's been okay. a couple of years. I know <laughs> it's been a couple of years. But did you get a chapter on nutrition? Did you get a week on nutrition? Like I'm
1: I'm willing to bet that it was pretty short. Of course. You know what I mean? We are had to hide our energy drinks, hide all the caffeine we're drinking. But yes, we didn't get to really dive deep into that. And nutrition being fundamental yeah, to health. Of course.
2: Yeah. You know, fundamental to health. I just, I got off the phone with my mom who just was released from the hospital. She has CHF. Oh, wow! Well, congestive guess, heart failure for the business. Congestive, workout. thank you. <laughs> yeah, Congestive heart failure. And guess what put her in the hospital? Let me guess, was it the salt in her diet? Totally the salt in her <laughs> diet. She, it wasn't the drugs. It wasn't the, you know, it wasn't the medication. It wasn't any of that. It was, she thought it would be a really nice treat to have a Chinese takeout <laughs>
1: for dinner. Well, you know, Tom. You know, I'm gonna to have to send your mom some Mrs. Dash. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. No one else got that joke. It's kind of like the substitute salt. But me and Tom, we we were kind of around the same age. We thought that was kind of fun. <laughs> but you no, know, I wanted to make sure I integrate this, and I hope your mom is doing good. Yeah, which is fine, thanks. What is the biggest challenge working with me? other doctors? Because you're right. You know what I mean? We're kind of set in our ways sometimes. Sometimes we're hard to play with. Sometimes thinking outside the box may not be the easiest thing for many healthcare professionals. So what 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 is the biggest challenge? You know what I mean? Like, are you squeezing a stress ball every time you get off the phone? <laughs> not at all. You know, I think it's really
2: interesting. I'm really excited you asked this question. You know, I've been doing this for almost 30 years. And what I see is Physicians that they either go super deep into biostats and epidemiology, and you're like, I have no idea what you're saying right now because you're talking about double blind, blah, 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 with placebo this and whatever. Um, so they go super deep or avoid it altogether. So I don't want to know anything about that research or biostats or epidemiology. I just deliver medicine the way I learned in my residency and the way that you know my attending learned when he, when he or she was or when they were a resident. So it's kind of like if I was monarch for the day or over medical school, it would be providing the opportunity for young physicians to actually be comfortable with research. You don't have to be an expert in statistics, but what does it mean when an odds ratio looks like this or what does yeah. it mean? You know, so just being an educated consumer, of research versus needing to be an expert
1: or trying to avoid it altogether. And just to kind of parlay on that, I mean, one of your biggest strengths was, you know, I remember when I used to come up to you and say, hey, let's talk about C. diff. Let's talk about, you know, monitoring serum levels of brain natriuretic peptide for heart failure. You always seemed a way to encourage the clinical, but kind of bring it down to earth to talk in a language to integrate Hey, you do need to know a little bit about these stats, Raj. It may not be your strongest point, but if you want to come off as the doctor, you want to be. I thought you did a really good job with that. You didn't make me hold back on my strong points, but you knew when to push it just enough. So compliment to you on that. Appreciate that. Thanks, Raj. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, that's why it's my podcast. <laughs> but um, so you know, this kind of leads into you you talk a lot to residents and med school students. I know that. So what do you think med schools need to focus? a little bit more of? Do you think it, it is the biostats and epidemiology or are things good the way they are? It's just how they're teaching it. Yeah, I think, man, you know, med school is so
2: much of here's the material, conquer it. Here's the material, conquer <laughs> it. Here's the material, conquer it. And it, you know what I mean? It comes in yep. these chunks and boom, boom. And the expectation for each of those chunks of material is that you master it. Of course, and and that goes—that's sort of antithetical to what I just said a few minutes ago, which is, you don't have to—you ma- don't have to be the master, right? You're not—you don't have to be the top epidemiologist or biostatistician. You just need to be an educated consumer of those materials. So I think, you know, the the swing and the miss in med school is what I see happening in a lot of the top residency programs where they have journal club or kind of proctored or mentored sessions that take literature and take research and break it down and make it clinically relevant, yet understandable from a statistics standpoint. And I think also that applied, you know, adult learning theory is so much grounded in application and learn and living that. So rather than like, oh, I'm doing this, you know, I'm going to run a Multinomial regression or some you know, <laughs> doodle thing, but to say, like, oh, I collected these data from patients, now I'm going to analyze it or work with a st- statistician to analyze it, and then really have that statistician teach me how to explain a chi square yeah. or a t test or the like. So it really is that helping young budding physicians or seasoned physicians mm-hmm. being comfortable with the literature and look and yeah we get inundated with so much research on a daily basis and one minute aspirin's good, the next aspirin's bad, eggs great example, are good. Great example. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a flip-floppity, flop-flop, mm-hmm. and having an insight on the research can help um, understand what were the limitations of those earlier studies or the later studies or what are the yeah. disadvantages or what's the confidence around these kinds of statements because they... I think what happens sometimes they get sensationalized in the media. No offense, Raj, but they get sensationalized (laughs) a little bit. And then everybody's like, oh, well, I'm not going to, you know, do that or do this. And I can only imagine patients coming in being super
1: confused. Yeah. Well, you know what? Let me just say that that was the pandemic, right? The pandemic turned out to be, you know, did you know your numbers? It's a numbers game. I think that's where you kind of grounded me. And I think that's where people were very confused. You know what I mean? So... Well said. But I want to make sure, because you know I am keeping one eye on the time, that we talk about what you're here for today. And we're here to talk about Feeding America. Let me just start off with what is Feeding America?
2: I couldn't be more proud to work with this organization, which is a, a national organization that's a network of 200 food banks around the U.S. We're the largest Nonprofit hunger relief organization in the United States. We work; uh, those 200 food banks work with over 60,000 community agencies. Oh my God! We're in every single county in the United States, as well as Washington D.C. and Puerto Rico. So you you can't give me a community in which we're not touching with hunger relief efforts.
1: Is it a non profit organization? Is it the premier one here in the United States? So
2: it's the second largest nonprofit organization in the United States behind the United Way.
1: Oh, wow. It's amazing. So
2: yeah, we top rated in Charity Navigator and it's it's a, it's a stellar organization. I was really feel blessed to be part of it.
1: So number one, I mean, every time I'm talking to you, it's kind of like, we are there in a different state, educating you different people. And I think this is Great. I think this fits you well. It fits your personality well and what your passions are. But How did you get this job and what is your job? Because I'm always confused. What exactly is your job? That's like a 10-minute conversation every time. <laughs> so what do you do and how did you find this job? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so
2: it's, it's funny when you look back, and I'm in my mid-50s. When I look back to all the different jobs I've had, whether it was faculty member or working in a healthcare system or in a research center, all these different things, I feel that that whole experience, that pathway uniquely prepared me for this current position, which is really to lead a, a phenomenal team. I can't even brag enough about what a great team I have that has some really hefty responsibilities. So for example, you know, during the pandemic, our CEO went and spoke with Trevor Noah in the Daily Show. So Trevor starts spouting out statistics about 60 million people was were, were served by charitable food assistance during 2020. Guess where that number came from? It uh, did not yeah, exactly. <laughs> My guy over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It came from the came from our team. Right? Yeah. It came from our team. So it's 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 partially that, like having the um, data and the insights and being able to take information from the Census Bureau, from the USDA, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. We get data from uh, Nielsen, oh, you know, on market yeah, analysis. Ratings, of course. For sure. Yeah. yeah. We get all those kinds of data and kind of mix it up and and utilize it and, and put it in statistical models to predict food insecurity at the local level. Um to look at food insecurity overall in the uni- in United States. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: That's a really great one with, with you know, the pandemic
2: saw <laughs> unprecedented numbers. So by our best estimate, you know, because there was social distancing and all that kind of thing, but really Don't by our best, <laughs> okay, our best estimate in um, 2020, at least 60 million people wow. uh, were served, which is nearly one in five.
1: What's the difference? Because, you know, I've been reading the websites a little bit. So what's the difference between Individual served per year and meals distributed. Yeah, so you Excuse you know. me. Make make me smart again. Sure, sure, sure.
2: <laughs> so it's not like we hand out, you know, one meal per person and they're square for the rest of the year, right? So a yeah. lot of times, and during, during the pandemic, look, yeah. I mean, wow, you know, in in twenty twenty one we we served at least fifty three million people and distributed over 6 billion meals. Wow. If you're like me, you're like, 6 billion seems big. I have no idea how to wrap my head around that number of zeros. So just as a thought experiment, I said, okay. if I took all of that, if I took you know those, those meals or pounds of food or however you wanted to use it and said, okay, what if it was all oranges? It turns out that if we did 6 billion meals... In the equivalent, of, you know, if we did oranges, the equivalent of 6 billion meals, those oranges would fill up the orange bowl wow. six and a half times. No, oh six God. and a half times. So you have to fill it up, dump it out, fill it up, dump it out six and a half times. So the, Nice analogy, by the way. Wow. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, a lot of times people are, de- I, I use this analogy a lot. It's not like food insecurity rides alone. It likes to ride with a posse. So a lot of times it rides with unemployment, lack of affordable housing, uh, medical bills. Raj, you know, medical bills or medical expenses are probably the second leading contributor for food insecurity in the United States. People are dealing with these trade-offs. Do I pay the utilities today or do I buy groceries for my family? Do I um, fix that flat tire on my car so I can get to work to make money, or do I feed my kids dinner tonight? So like, decisions. right? So I think that's that's where uh, the, the, the distinction is between the number of people
1: served versus the number of meals. It's just significant yeah. need. Can you define what food insecurity is to the listeners? I'm sure they're they're dying now. Like Tom, can you explain to us?
2: yeah. so there's a difference between hunger, which is a physical sensation that many of us experienced if if we, you know, worked through lunch and skipped a meal or you know, it's that your body's telling you it's time yeah. to eat. Food insecurity is a chronic state of that, or said more directly the way the USDA defines it, which is its economic and social condition where you, don't have access to adequate food. You legitimately don't know where your next meal is coming from on kind of a continuing basis. Or you're skipping meals so that others in your household could eat. Or you've know you you got folks that are eating rice for breakfast, rice for yeah. lunch, rice for dinner, because rice is cheap, rice is filling, but it's not very nutritional. It doesn't give you that balanced
1: diet that you really need. So again, it's like that, so it's um, kind of all-encompassing, like, like what you said, hunger is, sure, I mean, after this, I'm going to go eat because I'm getting a little hungry, but it's factoring in the things that we don't think about. I like the analogy of like sacrificing something like your health, your car, just to get food on the table for yourself and others. So it's a broader statement that covers more things. Am I saying it correctly? Absolutely. And it it really deals with the
2: financial uh, situation and access to food because we've got some folks where legitimately the only place they can go and buy groceries is the corner liquor store or the gas station or the convenience store because there's not, you know, there's not a Whole Foods or a Kroger or Safeway or yeah. Walmart or anything
1: close to them. And then Grand Rapids would be Meyers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you know what? Now you got me into this food insecurity. So let's bring it to us here in the United States, people listening to my podcast. You know, um, what does food insecurity look like here in the United States, Tom? Yeah, man, the USDA has been tracking that for about a decade. And
2: what they discovered is there's a neighbor in every single community that's experiencing food insecurity. There's no place where it doesn't exist. Even in the the places where you would predict, Silicon Valley full of billionaires. Yeah, we can't afford to live there, Tom. I'm sorry. But and that's part <laughs> of the piece, right? I mean, that's yeah. part of it. There's there's people in that community that are doing essential labor, skills, getting paid minimum wage but can't afford to live there and are making these trade-offs with food. Oh, and wow. technically technically food insecure. And then there's, you know, folks in rural Mississippi or Louisiana. It's, it's times are tough. The other thing that's interesting that I'd love that I want to make sure to bring up with yeah. you is, is the equity piece, um, particularly racial equity. So we we oh, yeah. see when we take when we put a map of food insecurity of the United States down, and we look at all of the pockets of food insecurity where it's higher than other areas. Yeah, you can overlay a racial breakdown, my brown and black communities, on top of that, and it's almost Identical, and it's not that. Without getting too sociopolitical, yeah. it, it's it's the the historic discrimination, racial bias that exists in our political schemes, in the way that we divide communities, yeah. uh, redlining districts, our schools. Like everything speaks into that, um, so that we're engaged in not just providing food which is the immediate need, but also trying to end hunger, which has to take on institutional discrimination, systemic racism, these kinds of broader
1: community issues. You know, I got to tell you that I'm not really surprised. You know what I mean? I don't want to get into that whole political debate, too. But if there's another layer of the map, which is the pandemic that we're still kind of going through already, I'm sure that's going to have very similarities about people not having access to testing and medications, vaccines. So it's it's so scary on so many levels. But I want to make sure that, I mean, are there some staggering numbers when we talk about the food insecurities in the U.S., about percentages and things I'll just kind of be like, oh, that just doesn't sit right? Anything you want to throw out there?
2: Yeah, This is where you get a chance to throw the shock number out, right? Okay. And I know you have kids, so this is one that just always... Yeah. Gets right down to my bone. One in four children experience food insecurity in the United States right now. Is that right? I mean, that's kind of one in four, 25%. Yeah. You know, uh, school lunches, school breakfast programs, um, national lunch program, those that were instituted recognizing this atrocious sort of statistic. Uh, yeah, I, I start to have difficulty finding the words because I just think about yeah. um, kids showing up to
1: school hungry and what impacts that has. Um, that's why we only do the audio because I can see you getting a little like kind of robbed up. <laughs> so that's why we're doing the audio. But, Perfect. Well, yeah. you know, that makes sense. And that's why I love that you work for Feeding America because you're passionate about things. And I same thing when we were robbed up back in the in the olden days of medical school and residency. I see it now. But I want to kind of bring it back to like the connection between Feeding America, the work that you guys do over there, and just health in general. And I know what it is, but I want you to say it so my listeners could understand what is the connection of what you do and how you relate to just well-being.
2: So I know you do a lot of education yourself and
1: teach a lot of courses and you like to
2: pop quiz people on the spot. So I'm going to ask you, (laughs) pop quiz, pop quiz for Dr. Raj. Yep. Yep. I want you to think and think really carefully. Look through all of what's available. What's the okay. worst possible nutritious meal that you could come up with?
1: Oh boy, um, I'm going to mimic what my uh, youngest girl likes to have in the morning. I think it starts off with like cocoa puffs for no reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then and then when she uh, we say, hey, what do you want in our little snack bag? Uh, it's called fruit by the foot, which is not even fruit. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like something else. It's a misnomer to begin with. And then, of course, would you like the water, which is we need to drink more water? No, I think I'll take the Capri Sun. Mm. And granted, everyone's making fun of me because those things are available in our house. But um, yeah, I think that those are kind of like the things that um, you're just not going to give you a good pillar of health. You know what I mean? Right. And right, right. One, of my, one of my jams over there, you got me started off, Tom, is that, you know, there are things that are essential to good health. And I think that the American Heart Association kind of laid down some of these pillars. You know what I mean? It's going to be the exercise. It's going to be the sleep. It's going to be food and nutrition. So yeah. your organization, to me, is holding up a huge part of the healthcare system that people don't know about. You got it totally wrong. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> and,
2: and it's not. Yep. Flaming hot Cheetos and Mountain Dew for breakfast. That's that's not the worst <laughs> nutritious meal. Um, the worst nutritious meal is one that's not there at all. Wow. Right? Good one. I didn't even Think about that. Well, I didn't mean oh, to make you mind. feel bad because this that's is really a feel nice, feel yeah. nice, Show, but I you know, the AHA's work, the American Heart Association's working at is tremendous. I'll take you back even further in time to Maslow's hierarchy. Oh, look at you, right? you know, unless you've got those basic needs covered, you can excel as an individual in any way, shape or form. So, you know, I, I kind of joke around. It's not like you need to have an advanced degree in nutrition or a medical degree to know that food is fundamental to our health. I, I think it's kind of mm-hmm. funny. There's a recent development in the healthcare space called food is medicine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> trying to, uh, to, to sort of say that. And to me, Great. That's awesome. I'm glad that work is going on to recognize that food is medicine. But there's another piece of it that's like, duh, of course, food. Like food is medicine. You think about when you were sick, when you were a kid, your mom brought you the Chicken soup that had sodium in it because you had a fever and
1: you were sweating out the salts and the and the the pieces that you needed, right? No, I agree. And let me throw something out there, because you know I always want to do a little comedy. And this is true, you know, Tom. You know, let me put you on the spot. You're my inner circle of friends. You know what I mean? <laughs> Doctor Raj is is two races put together, right? And you always know I'm Indian because I'm I'm brown and I'm, my name is Raj. What what's my other race, Tom? Oh, this is really good. Yeah, and I and I'm not gonna hold it against you, even though uh, you're one of my best friends, and I'm a little sad. I know no. it's been a while since I've seen your parents. I know, and you saw right. my parents at graduation.
2: I I want to just I'm gonna go out on a limb. Well, this will probably be crazy. I want to say tie.
1: So close. I'm Filipino, half Indian. Yeah, half there we go. Filipino. And, and why am I sewing this out there? Because you mentioned my mom, the chicken soup. Now, because my mom is Filipino, when I was sick growing up, there was only one way to cure me. And that was VIX vapor rub. Yeah, <laughs> all over your chest and up your nose. And yeah, I'm telling you, you know, if I got the pneumonia, it's going to be some VIX vapor rub, you know? <laughs> so, yes, a combination of, of of the chicken soup and the VIX was, was the magical thing. And love you, mom. Yeah. Sorry, mom. I, I should have known you were Filipino. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I was going to say that I always want to integrate what we're going through now. You know, I, I never say that the pandemic is over, even though that was one of the biggest rumors a few months ago, because two words, long COVID. But yeah. what impact is the pandemic? And I feel like we're not going to say goodbye to it yet. Is having, you know, on your work. You could comment that at any part of the pandemic. Man,
2: i would say initially... It was like the worst scenario one could imagine for our network, which was massive shutdown. And our network relies heavily on volunteers. And if you've been to any kind of volunteer event, who are the primary people volunteering? It's your senior citizens. It's your retired folks. It's those that were at the highest risk of of COVID-19. So they were like on lockdown. I'm not... Volunteering, I'm locking it down here. So, volunteers, labor force down. And it, you went shopping during that time. Did you try to find toilet paper and water? And you know, you could. Everything was bare. It looked like the zombie apocalypse. Everything. Yeah. There was no food available anywhere. Yeah, and that included.
1: We were, were like riding over toilet paper, right? Yeah, and, and like, I mean, Clorox bleach was like what, like a thousand dollars for <laughs> like a little. Bottle. Right, and then
2: you could only buy certain. You you can only have one one roll of toilet paper yeah. a day or yeah. whatever it was. Yeah, it was. We, we had the triple whammy going on. We had the volunteers down. Food availability way way down. And the demand for food way, way up because you suddenly had people that were unemployed. They didn't know what the future looked like. Um, you had, you know, it was, it's crazy. I, I lived in the South side of Chicago during that time. And there was a bar owner that used to, uh, he had a bar and grill kind of thing. Sure. And he used yeah. to to donate meals locally uh, to one of the churches for people to eat. I volunteered at that church handing out food yeah. using the line bar was closed down nobody's yeah doing that or whatever and suddenly he went from being a donor to somebody in need yeah. so that was that triple whammy happening right yeah. away so that yeah. was really tough of course um and we had corporate partners that rose to the occasion the government actually for uh, we all like to criticize our elected officials <laughs> uh, no matter what our political party is yeah but the government stepped up big you know, for its citizens and and helped out. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Yes. um, And the private group and and donors, you know, you got the Jeff Bezos and McKinsey Scotts and other like big major gifts that came in, but then also the grandma Millie that was doing $20 a month. All of a sudden, instead of, you know, this many grandma Millies, you know, we had three times the number of
1: grandma Millies doing $20. Let me get this straight. So, People who could, and maybe even yeah. people who couldn't, really stepped it up to help the hunger during the pandemic. For sure. That, yeah. You know, that's awesome. I mean, that's, when I hear stories about putting other people's needs you know, in front of your own, that's amazing. I didn't know those were the, the numbers, the uh, stats. Yeah. That's a God bless America right there. You
2: know
1: yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, we saw
2: tons of people coming forward, Like ridiculous numbers. Our um, donations tripled. During that time. What did
1: you do I mean did you make a push to kind of let people know that hey, we're out here now, this is when you need us the most?" I mean, was yeah. that when they needed you to make awareness of what was going on out there? Um, you know what's interesting is partially, but then
2: people were looking like, how can I help? How can I help? And then others were stepping up. So we had like Elton, John and other people that did a benefit concert for Feeding America and highlighted. Stories and stats, wow. you know, and yeah. things like that. We had comic events that did the same. Ben um, Affleck and Matt Damon did a poker tournament. Different yeah. ways that people kind of showed up and raised awareness. You, you know, the thing that's really impacting communities now, Raj, is the in, is inflation <sighs> and sort of this the the economic downturns. Yeah. That are still ripple effects from from the ongoing pandemic and the war in the Ukraine and and other things happening there. So
1: yeah, I, I can't even afford to drive to work anymore. I might just hitchhike in here. You know what I mean? Bro, I you know
2: my <laughs> youngest is in L.A. and I I went to visit him. We rented a car and I went to fill the darn thing up and I was like, "What? Wait, wait, wait! Am I buying this car?" <laughs> like, I went, I went, look. By, I've been robbed at
1: the pump by the pump. What I, it was crazy. <laughs> no, you crazy. That, nowadays, you forget something at home. That's it, dude. I'll see you at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. Have to do without it, you know, I definitely 100% agree with you. I think right now that is the new challenge. You know, the new Mount Rushmore is... Getting over the new prices, you know what I mean? But- exactly. Raj, can I say one, one more thing about. Say whatever you want. Just be yeah. the guest. You're the guest of honor.
2: Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, you know, I, I mentioned the USDA collecting food insecurity data and, and doing those rates at a national level on an, on an annual basis for the last okay. 10 years. Yeah. Since uh, 2008, I probably don't have to remind you of how awful. The housing, you know, mortgage, all the bank savings, and all that crazy economic stuff going on. Then we've seen food insecurity rates going down over time, which is a good thing. Which is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, you you sound a little sad. sad. I mean, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is during uh, 2020 and 2021, those rates stayed the same as 2019. Like in 2020, it was the same pre-pandemic as it was post-pandemic. Yeah, we served like 20 million more people than we did the year before.
1: How did that happen? It doesn't yeah, make
2: sense. I, so, exactly. So that's why I like to challenge us to think about, well, it's just, oh, those food security rates are going down. They must have it handled. Yeah. No. It, you know, in a in a crisis period of time, the, the beginning of the pandemic, how awful that was. And, and people, we saw miles and miles of cars lined up food, right? It was that response that I just talked about. It was the the public response, the government coming up with new programs, pandemic, EBT, um, a form of um, supplemental nutrition assistance. Everyone wants to know what you're saying. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's there's, uh, people here of SNAP, which is a government program. Back in the day, we used to call it food stamps. Okay. Um, gotcha. But it's a way for people to be able to buy food at their local grocery store um, in, in a way that that they prefer. But what I wanted to get back to is yeah. that the food insecurity rates stayed down or kind of stayed in that same vein because private people stepped up, the food bank community stepped up, the government stepped up, and we proved that we could actually make a difference in the hunger and food insecurity space. And it wasn't, you know how some of those Some of these things we get resigned about. Oh, we're never going to change that or we're never going to make a difference there. And I just wanted to like, because this is the Be Nice show, I wanted to highlight the fact that collectively, and this is Republicans, Democrats, Mm -hmm. Libertarians, Atheists, Hindu, Muslim, Mm -hmm. Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, like people joined together and made a difference for their community, made a difference in in the United States in a, in a hugely significant way. Cause I'm, I can, I I bet you anything had that response not been the way it was,
1: we would be in so much worse shape right now. Of course. Let me just ask this question. And I don't think there's an answer or maybe you do have it, which is, well, how do we sustain that? I don't want to have a a pandemic every 10 years. I don't want to have a a 9-11 every 10 years. I want to do something to prevent it and to be keep that, you know what I mean, that food insecurity low. So what do we do and is Feeding America part of that? What are you guys doing? Yeah, I think it's a little of both. We just, uh, two weeks ago, the White House
2: had a, a conference on hunger and health, which was the last time they had a conference in the White House on this when? was 50, 50 years ago. Oh my God, you figured that's
1: a little, you know, far and in between.
2: Yeah, and so okay. really the government's looking at, We've got these existing programs that you know are within the USDA and other governmental agencies. What other kinds of programs would make a difference for hunger and health and, and nutrition? I, I think there's always going to be a role for food banks because not everybody is eligible for governmental programs. Until we figure out a way uh, to to support the working poor. Whether it's increased minimum wage or universal income or something like that, th- there's always going to be a gap
1: where people are making really hard decisions. And let know. me just throw it out there, get me all riled up. So and that's what the, when you know the pandemic did. It really exposed the gap. You know what I mean? Like, oh, oh my God, it was already you know tense situation in our country in many different ways gender economics food and that pandemic really exposed it because when we talk about for say you know women all of a sudden women became head of household they took all that responsibility and the women who actually were had to be head of household weren't getting paid a lot to begin with so you know just I get really kind of fired up but you're making correct sense there but with that being said what what is your goal in the future it doesn't always have to be you know what are going to do for feeding america you will do great things for that but what do you want to do I
2: really appreciate that question and opportunity to reflect.
1: Mm-hmm. In in the
2: spirit of of uh, keeping track, keeping your timeline somewhat reasonable. I think and and this is legit, not just because I work for Feeding America, but um we put out a bold goal of reducing food insecurity in half by 2030. So that that's kind of my personal professional goal. Nice. Um and reducing the disparities that exist in black and brown communities, as well as rural communities. So no lie, like doing business differently, making more impact, and I'm all about that. Collecting data and having insights to help, (laughs) you know, make sure we're doing the right thing. I think on a personal level, being fulfilled. And my job, I've, I've found, I've been lucky enough, blessed enough to find a job, where every single day I leave fulfilled. Now, do I get frustrated upon occasion? Do I like, (laughs) you know, absolutely, like anything, you know, but at the end of the day, I am fulfilled and happy and joyful. And my children, my family see that and they're like, I want to be like, dad, I'm going to do something different. I want to, you know, so just kind of like being the touchstone for folks to like know that they can make a difference no matter what. Maybe you're not taking on domestic food insecurity, but you're changing your community and your in your neighborhood, or you're volunteering, you know, at the school or or whatever it is. But just that that every little bit makes a difference. I think we got, for a variety of reasons, people got really resigned and critical, but I, I remain joyful and optimistic that we all can make a difference.
1: Well, let me just say this, is that, I mean, you're truly a good person. And, you know, I did get to meet your wife and your kids. I, you invited me over for Christmas dinner one year. Our dogs kind of fought a little bit. But you, you're just amazing. And, I, and your your children are very lucky to have a role model like you. And I, and I really mean that. Yeah. You know I appreciate I mean? that. Yeah, yeah, No, you deserve it. <laughs> you earned it. I want to make sure that someone who's listening, one of my yeah. listeners, you know, is probably going to be interesting to do. More and I always feel in my heart. It's always about getting that one extra person, you know. And that's what you taught me. That yes, you know, it's always nice to have a whole city do something, a whole state do something, but you got to do what's right in front of you. And I, hopefully, that one person's interested and it can make a difference. So, if they want to learn more about Feeding America or yourself, what what is the best way to kind of reach out and get info?
2: Yeah, the best way is to go to feedingamerica.org. Okay, a really, really simple. Feedingamerica.org. Um, lots of information there. Uh, ways to donate, ways to volunteer. Um, I think you know there's still tens of millions of people in need in the United States, and and they need our help. So you can do that by donating. I think financial donations are like the most efficient way to help food banks because they can do that in very flexible ways. Um, you can donate food. There's always local uh, food course. drives and things yeah. like that. You know, I think if you if you've listened, if you made it all the way through this podcast, <laughs> letting your friends know about the issue of hunger and and raise that awareness, and because some people don't know, and if you catch a Dr. Raj post, you know, on social media, <laughs> forward that social media, you know, and and heart it or retweet it or post it again. Uh, lo- local officials are great to talk to. And, you know, if you've got contacts in the food industry and people can donate or think uniquely about that, part of our solution set is getting that donated food, but also rescuing food that is otherwise going to go in a landfill and create all kinds of issues from a, a climate standpoint, greenhouse gases, and uh, all kinds of stuff. So, a lot of our stuff comes from donated product. A lot of our product that we distribute is donated by the food industry as well. So I, I think if we can gather together and people contribute time, talent, or treasure, we can create an America where nobody is hungry no child goes to bed hungry or goes to school hungry and no you know, senior citizen has to be concerned about where their next meal is or any, anybody. So I really appreciate the opportunity to to be here with you, Raj.
1: Thank you for being here today. And you know, this podcast is actually going to be released right before Thanksgiving in 2022. And I think that Tom made a big push to make sure that he spent time to get this podcast out there because he is passionate about it and his passion is my passion. And like he said, the Dr. Raj podcast is just, just about being nice. So I hope, you know, everyone today just really learned about one in four. You know what I mean? That's that blows my mind. Yeah. And one,
2: one in four children and one in five adults. I mean, you
1: can't. Yeah. Yeah. But Tom, um, thank you so much for being here today. And for everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Enjoy the holidays and stay tuned for the next Dr. Raj podcast.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris again. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.